Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at ccloto.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. So now I got to preach really good for you, right? Because you risked life and limb for this. So set the bar low. Nobody will be disappointed. Now, we are in our study in 1 John. So if you have your Bible, open up to 1 John. We're continuing there. As always, if you don't have a physical Bible and you want one, it would be our just gift to you. We have them in the hub. Swing over there, grab one. Um, You don't have to pay for it. It is a gift. Steal it from us, not from Walmart. Amen? There we go. All right, so we are in... First John, we're going to start in chapter 2, just write just a couple verses, and we're going into chapter 3. And I've said it repeatedly. I know that seems awkward at times, but the chapters and the verse divisions and all that, that was added 1,500 years after the time of writing. And that just helps us to understand where in Scripture we're trying to reference. They're just reference guides. That's all that is. It wasn't like John was sitting here writing thinking, John 3.16, they're going to love this. You know, that, It was all added later. So this is one continuous like letter that he's writing, which kind of sometimes is hard because when we're reading Scripture, we, we sometimes allow those chapter divisions to cause thought breaks. And a lot of times, because we placed them in not the best locations, it's like, no, the original author, the thoughts connect. Don't think that it's a whole new thing. And especially for us, as we go verse by verse, you know, we have to stop somewhere because the clock on the wall and they, you know, you guys want to get to lunch and things like that. But, you know, every Sunday we're building this, continuing this study through it. So it's not one of those like, oh, forget everything you learned last week. And this is a whole new thing. It's like, no, no, no. Don't forget all of that. We're building on this. This gives it all the context that we want so we can have the full understanding of what God has for us. But we're going in 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to read all the way to 3.10. And so, and now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And you know that he is righteous you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. And no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 
And by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John is not holding back. He is throwing some punches. And in this section of Scripture, you hear him repeat a few things just over and over again. Even he says that one line one more time for us. Don't be deceived. And if somebody looks at you and says, don't be deceived, there's a reason for that. Or somebody says, hey, don't be scared. There's a reason for that, right? It's like we're trying to watch a movie. You know, you ever watch a movie with someone that's already watched it before and they sin massively because they don't keep their mouth shut, right? This is like the first time you're watching it and they're like, oh, wait for this part right here. Yeah, you just took away all the suspense and the surprise to it. It's like, I, I don't like that. It's like, shut up over there. There's a reason for that. They're letting us know something incoming is about to happen. And John is saying this line again and again. Don't be deceived. Why? Because there's a lot of people. There's a lot of things in this world that are going to try to deceive us and pull us away. And so anytime in Scripture, when you see the author repeating certain lines, like really take note of that. We even kind of mentioned that last week as we get into chapter 3 and 4. John repeats the word love 30-some times. And so if he's repeating this thing over and over and over again, obviously there's some attention that is needed from us about what he's talking about. And so John does this, just in this short passage of Scripture, he repeats two thoughts a couple times. He talks about how we need to abide in Jesus because he appeared, past tense, his first advent, what we celebrate at Christmas, right? His life and then all the way we celebrated Easter, his death. So we abide in him because he appeared. And then John calls us that we need to abide in him so that at his appearing, meaning that we're still waiting on something else. So we abide in him because he appeared, and we abide in him because, yeah, our faith is an expectant faith, that there's still more that's going to happen, that we're still waiting upon the Lord for his second advent, his return. And so John is telling us, like, we're right in the middle of this kind of in-between, the already and the not yet. Christ already came once. He died on the cross for our sins. He'll talk about why he appeared. And then we also abide in him because of our hope is not just in what he has done, but our hope is also in what he will do. And so we now live in the tension between his appeared and his appearing. And that can be really hard, especially even in our life, because we know that we need to abide in him because he appeared. And why did he appear? Verses 5 and 8 tells us to take away sins. He appeared to take away sins. So Jesus took our sins because he was sinless. If, and, and so that's something we really need to defend well. We talked last week about how the world is trying to attack the person of Jesus. And one of the ways I believe he's still under attack is those that are critical to our faith will say things like, oh, he was a good moral teacher. Oh, he was this or that. But he wasn't the spotless, perfect lamb of God. That he probably sinned like the rest of us. You know, you get your coffee order wrong at Starbucks. I'm sure Jesus would have got mad and angry too. And, or if there's pickles on his burger, I bet he threw it back at him and yelled at him. Like, he overturned tables. Like, obviously, he's got a short fuse. Well, anger is a real emotion, but we use it in the wrong ways. 
And so even with Jesus and the emotions that he has and the things that he did, because even the thought of like, okay, did he really fulfill the law or did he break the law and touching a leper and you're not supposed to? And, you know, you look at these. And, and so the attack is, no, Jesus was just like us. Sinful man. He fell. He didn't. And that's one of the attacks that we have. And why that's so important to understand that Jesus is perfect because if he wasn't, he couldn't take away the sins of the world. You know, we have to go back to that Exodus story of this, uh, the Israelites coming out of Egypt and the, on the Passover, they needed to have that perfect spotless lamb and they would sacrifice and they would take the blood of that lamb and apply it to their doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over. You couldn't just grab any lamb that you wanted. It had to be a perfect, spotless lamb. And that is Jesus. That for him to be able to take our sins away, he had to be sinless. Even as we talked about the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the boastful, boastful pride of life, and Jesus in Matthew 4 being tempted in every way, but yet was sinless. Like that is a, that is a line in the sand that we as followers of Jesus have to hold strong to that we cannot give up any ground in because one, it's attack on the character and the person of our Lord and Savior, but if he's not perfect, we have no salvation. If Jesus committed one sin, we have no salvation whatsoever because then he would not have been an acceptable sacrifice for us. But we know even in the book of 1 John that it says that he is our propitiation, meaning that God said, yes, that is an acceptable sacrifice. Almost kind of the receipt of, yes, this is acceptable payment for our sin. And so Jesus takes away our sins, but it's a fuller, deeper understanding theologically of what he did, right? Because for us, it's not just, oh, he paid for my sin, but he paid the penalty of our sin. That's what justification is. So when Jesus paid for that penalty of sin, it's because God, as judge, now looks at us, slams down his gavel, but because of our faith in Jesus says, we are not guilty. So he takes away the penalty of our sin, justification. And then he takes away the power of our sin, and that's sanctification. So we as followers of Jesus, the moment we surrender, submit our lives to him, we are born again, we are justified, and then we start a process of becoming sanctified, where little by little we, we are becoming more like Christ, we have this Christ-likeness about us, and it's because he took away the power of sin, the things that used to hold on to us very strongly before, that would just, they were like chains, keeping us imprisoned in our sin, he's released that power. See, all of us in our sin, when we were lost, were in the grave. And because we are justified, that grave was opened. The issue is some of us don't want to walk out of the grave. You're free from that sin. Just walk away from it. Allow the power of Christ to show you that he has released you from the power of sin. And this is what sanctification is. And he starts chiseling at us to make us more like him, right? And then Jesus took away our sins. He took away the presence of sin. And that's what we're waiting on. So there's justification 
As followers of Jesus, we're all in sanctification. We're all smack dab in the middle of that process. And we're waiting, again, our expectant faith is that we're waiting on glorification that will only happen when we breathe our last breath or we're raptured up with Jesus, that we are going to be released from even the presence of sin. So when we understand who God is and how there cannot be any sin in his presence, we're going to experience what that is like. There's a, a little bit of a competition in our household every once in a while when we go to the grocery store and you load up on groceries and they're all in the back of the van and they have to get from the car to the house, right? I am under the uh, correct understanding that if it takes me a few trips, that's okay because I don't want to rip my shoulders apart because I have to carry everything in my hands, unlike my wife who will have like plastic indentations and scarring on her arms because she has to carry everything and usually drops half of it and then we have to go back to the store and it's just an endless cycle. But you know when you walk in and you drop all those down and you just feel that release of that weight? When people ask me, hey, what do you think heaven's gonna be like? You know, I really don't know. And when I read scripture to give us a glimpse of it, and obviously, it can't give us too much because if we knew too much about heaven, we'd all drink the Kool-Aid and get there real quick, right? Like, why stay here for 40 more years when we know fully what awaits us? We know it's going to be better. It's going to be awesome. But obviously, God wants us here for a reason, and he's about life. But one of the things I talk about is, you know that release when you just like drop a heavy weight and you just feel that burden lifted? Like, now put that to a spiritual level, that Jesus took the presence of sin away, that that old sin nature is going to be released off of us. Even the ability to sin is going to be released off of us, that that we're going to have a full spiritual freedom from sin. That's why Jesus appeared, right? So if you want to hold there, go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul writes, for our sake for our sake, for your sake, our sake. He made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So obviously defending that Jesus is perfect. So that in him, so what do we get? So Jesus appeared to take away sin. So that in him, again, for our sake, so that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And this is what John is talking about when he says we abide in him because he appeared to take away sins. And we cannot abide in Jesus and keep on sinning. Why? Because he took away the penalty, the power, the presence of sin, but he appeared to give us his righteousness. And so it's not that he just took away all the bad things because then we're neutral. But then he applied his righteousness to us. So understand the view that God has of us, that by our faith in Jesus, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our past sin. He doesn't see our present sin in our life. He doesn't even look at us and be like, oh yeah, I know what you're going to do in a couple weeks. Oh, I know what next year is going to be like for you. No. He sees the righteousness of God. And so John is writing, he's like, understanding this theologically, you have to allow this to be lived out in your life. You can't just have the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin pulled from you for Christ and just keep living in sin. You've been given the righteousness of God. Like, understand who you are, your identity in that. And once we know that, 
we have to now present ourselves as instruments of righteousness, is what Paul writes in Romans 6. And so we cannot abide in Jesus and keep on sinning. And, and that's a very hard statement. We're going to break that down. But what we have to understand is the completed work of Christ on the cross, the completed work of Christ on the cross should bring a complete change in our view of sin. See, in my BC days and, and the things that I used to relish in and love and those were really important to me, now... In my faith in Jesus, I hate those things. The very things that used to take up so much of my time and my effort and I was so focused on and they brought me life and fulfillment and purpose. At least I thought they did. It was only for a short time and then it actually brought more brokenness and destruction and pain. I hate those things about my life. And I hate when I see other people falling into the same trap that I was in. See, because of Christ, it changes my view of sin. And that's where we need the lens of Jesus to be able to view not just the world around us. We need to view our hearts through the lens of the cross. And so Jesus appeared to take away sins, but also to destroy the works of the devil. And see, that's the crazy part of the already and the not yet. We are in the place of victory even though actually it has not been handled out. Because you hear that and it's like, well, if you look at our world, you feel like, man, the devil's still kind of working. I thought he came to destroy the works of the devil. See, I was, a, I was a nurse for seven some years before getting into ministry. And my first year of Bible college, I worked in a nursing home. And, and there was multiple people that I got to sit with during their last days. Some that were believers, and it was a beautiful thing. And something that I didn't know where they were going to be at. Sitting next to a gentleman who had no family and nobody to sit with him. So I sat with him. And the terror and the fear. And I just kept trying to tell him about Jesus. But when you're watching a life just slowly fade. Like medically, I knew it's not going to be long. Just give it time. And then the body's going to slowly shut down. It's the same thing with the devil. The works of the devil have absolutely been destroyed. That the cross has brought destruction to the enemy. We're in, that's what we talked about, we're in those last days. And we're watching just waiting for these last few breaths of his attack against God and anything righteous. But we know inevitably, we've read the end of the story. We're just waiting for that moment. And so we have to understand that in those last days, he's going to try to do everything to keep the attack against God possible and real and evident. And he doesn't want to waste any opportunity. Like we have to know that we have a very real enemy that wants nothing more than steal, kill, and destroy your life. But Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And that's not just something that we read at the cross. Now we go clear back to Genesis for that. Genesis 3.15. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first time a mentioning of the gospel of redemption is going to happen. And 
what God is saying is as he's looking at the serpents, he says, he, I believe a reference to Jesus, shall bruise your head. It's a death blow. And we know the other part that, and you're going to bruise his heel, which we see at the cross, but the cross where you bruised his heel, it's the same act that's going to be a death blow to you. So Christ appeared in, to destroy the works of the devil. Again, not just us staying in the tomb of our sin, walk out of that. Why? Because he wants to destroy that. It's kind of like you're downrange at a, at a shooting range. Get out of the way so we can light this target up. Quit standing in the way. Like you've been redeemed and restored. Like get out of that because he wants to bring destruction to that. And that's the hard part. If we don't get out of that sin, the Lord's still going to destroy it. And I think maybe that's what Paul was talking about when he, he was talking about individuals that would be saved, but he kind of uses the, the uh, I'm paraphrasing, but they're saved by the skin of their teeth. They're going to suffer loss because they didn't fully abide in him. Yes, they're saved, but man, when we talk about rewards and living life fully for Jesus, yeah, it's going to be a different story for that person. And so we have to understand, first, theologically, what Christ has done at the cross and when he appeared to take away sins to destroy the works of the devil. But again, now we have to allow that to be lived out practically in our lives. And so those old sins, we need to put some guardrails up. Even those new sins, those attacks that we're going to have, that's why we need a shield of faith. And we need to put, a, we need to put our a fight up. We need to put our gloves up. I come from a family of boxers, and so I used to hear that all the time. One of the, like, always got to keep your gloves up. You don't walk into the ring with your gloves down. No, you always walk and you approach in a defensive position. And understand, that's what the armor of God is. All those articles are for defense. There's only one weapon that we're given. And understand, that's where the attack comes from. Not trying to attack our sin, but we abide in him. We follow Jesus. That's the greatest attack we have. We abide in him because he appeared, but now John moves and he says, we abide in him so that at his appearing, meaning something that we all are waiting on, even Satan that is waiting for this to happen. He knows he's on borrowed, limited time. And John is encouraging us. Why do we need to abide in him? Because at his coming, he goes, I want you to have confidence. I don't want you to be like the person by the skin of their teeth. I want you with confidence to be ready for when Christ appears. I don't want it to be something like, uh, I, don't want to, I don't know when mom's going to show up back at home and I got to make sure my chores are done. And if not, I'm going to catch a whooping. Like I lived those days, right? Knowing that I wasn't doing what my parents called me to do when they were away. And so the idea of them coming home at any time, that was scary, it's like, I don't want you to live like children like that. I want you to have confidence. But where did that confidence come from? It's not just that we are made righteous, but now that we practice righteousness. And that's what John says in verse 7. He's like, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Now, I have to understand, our acts of righteousness don't make us righteous. We're made righteous by Christ. And that is the motivation. That's the only way that within we can walk in righteousness. 
And so it's not just something theologically and in our identity, but it's something that should be applied and lived out in our normal everyday life. Why? So that we have confidence in Christ. Because there's no fear in obedience. Like if, if I leave and I tell my kids, hey, this is what I want from you while I'm gone. So when I return, they have no fear in obedience. Dad can walk in at any time and it's perfectly fine. It's kind of like when you're driving and you pass a cop. If you're going the speed limit, you have nothing to fear. But what do we all do? Hit the brake. You got to get a couple under just so that he doesn't have any reason whatsoever to pull us over. And we have, that's that little bit of fear. You ever you see the cop and you're, oh, there he is. And your heart just kind of jumps like that. Some of you are old. You can't take that heart anymore, right? Slow it down. But it's the same way in the Lord. Have confidence. And where does that come from? Walking in righteousness because you're made righteous. It's practicing righteousness. It's like, I don't have to worry that when the Lord shows up, he's going to find me doing something. Hey, didn't I tell you not to do that anymore? No, I want him to find us doing the last thing that he's called us to do. And so if we are abiding in him and we are walking in obedience, there's no fear. So when my mom comes home and I'm washing dishes, well, hello. Well, hello to you, right? She comes home and I'm not washing dishes. <laughs> that was a different hello. That was a little bit of a different uh, action that would happen there. Because, again, there's no fear in obedience. Because we've been born of him. It's not just something that we try to force ourselves to do. John wrote in his gospel, recording the conversation that he had with Nicodemus. You've been born again. And we're not talking about your physical birth. No, no, you've been born again by the Spirit. That it's not just that Christ made you righteous, that he took away the presence, the power of sin, right? And the penalty of sin made you righteous. But now you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're full of the Holy Spirit. And so you have to understand that we're born again. And so if we're born of him, we're going to be like him, he says in verse 2, and we shall see him as he is. There's some fancy terms for this in the Latin and different things like that. But the idea is that there is coming a day that we'll be able to see fully Jesus. The visio beatifica. The beautiful vision. And so the idea, the thing that, that we are waiting to see, we, we follow this invisible God that was made visible in Christ. He appeared but we're waiting on his appearing, that we're going to see him again. And we'll be able to see him. Because all through the Old Testament, like, you'd hear that. Like, nobody can see God. Even Moses, like, hey, can I just catch a glimpse of you? <laughs> God's like, yeah, right. You're man. You can't look at me. How about you go hide yourself in the rock? I'm just going to walk past. And you can just, like, give me one of those, you know, you look as I'm walking past, right? And even as he was meeting with God, it was, it was not even a face-to-face -face type of meeting, fully, and it still caused a glow on his face, kind of like what you're seeing right now because of all the lights, right? But his was because of the light of God, not because of these lights. That he had to veil his face. It's like, Moses, you're spending too much time with the Lord. You're glowing. Like, knock it off. This is awkward. Like, it, again, it, it caused a lack of confidence in the Israelites around him. But we are like him. We get to see him as he is. And since we're born of him, we're going to be like him in purity. 
And see, I think that's one of the counterfeits that we've been talking about is that our world thinks that God doesn't care about righteousness and purity anymore. But John is telling us we're going to be like him. And in Matthew 5, 8, what's Jesus say? Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. So we're going to be like him. We're going to be able to see him. Why? Because of our righteousness that he gave us in the purity in which we live. Like that's the goal for all of us is that we want to be with God. We want to see God. Like let that thought just kind of resonate in your hearts. The God of all creation that spoke everything in the creation, that created you. One day you're going to be able to look at him. He's like, that's what I want you to have confidence in that you're going to stand before the Lord. And so we abide in him knowing that at his, at his appearance, we're going to be made like him. And I love what John says about this. He says, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we're going to be like him. So we don't fully understand what we're going to be like. And there's a lot of debate about that, you know, like, do we get our glorified bodies? When does that happen? What's a glorified body going to look like? I hope it has hair and a six-pack. And so does my wife. You know, we don't know what that really is going to be. We know it's a physical body. Jesus was glorified, was resurrected and glorified in a physical body. You know, he, he offered the wounds to be checked and verified by Thomas. And so he, he's not this mystical ghost. This is like floating. And if he's the first fruits of the resurrection, he's the example that we get. So whatever Jesus was glorified in, we're going to be glorified in a similar manner. We're going to be like him. And so sometimes we ask those questions, like, are we going to be able to recognize each other in heaven? Like, all I go with is it's always got to be better, right? So my wife will ask me, like, are we going to be married in heaven? Are we going to be, are we going to know who each other are in heaven? It's like, do we know each other now? Yeah but it's only going to be better in heaven. And like, do, do I know Cliff now? Yes, I know Cliff right now. Am I going to know him in heaven? Yes, because it's only going to be better. It can't be less. I'm not going to walk up to some guy with a sweet beard in heaven and be like, are you Moses? Be like, no, Cliff Simmons. Pretty close though, right? Like, that, no. Like, it's only going to be better. We don't know fully what it's like, but we know if we're going to be with him, we're going to see him, we're going to be like him I'm going with the guy that walked out of the grave on this, that whatever God has for us, it's going to be better. And now John moves to some really hard verses. So we need to abide in him because he appeared. We need to abide in him because he is appearing. So what do we do in the already and the not yet? Because that old sin nature still wants to creep back into our life. And even though we are made righteous and we're called to practice righteousness, we still fall. We still sin. We still struggle through our old selves. And he says some really hard things. Verse 6, verse 9. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And we understand that the completed work of Christ brings about a complete change in our view of sin. And you read those and it's like, it almost feels like a contradiction because you go back to 1 John 1, 8, where he says, if you say that you are without sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. So do I say that I'm, I have no sin? Well, I don't want to be a liar, but, but I don't want to, I abide in him so I can't keep on sinning like, like John, you kind of put us in a hard spot here, right? Like, what are you talking about here? And this is, this is a difficult passage that I think is actually getting some, um, the concept 
is, is a hot button topic in, in Christianity in the last just like 48 hours from a mega pastor that has a massive platform. So when we talk about no one who abides in him keeps on sinning and no one born of God practices sinning, that's a different mentality. And, and we pull this from the, the Greek kind of the grammar of this, that he's referencing something different than in 1 John 1, 8, where he says, hey, if you say that you have no sin, the truth is not in you. See, in 1 John 1, 8, he's kind of referencing like occasional acts of sin. Think of when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. Peter, the loudmouth, which gives me hope because I'm a loudmouth too, right? He's like, I just don't want you to wash my feet. I want you to wash all of me. And what Jesus said, you've been made clean. I just need to clean your feet up every once in a while. See, that's us as believers. We've been made righteous, but we need to keep short accounts with God for those occasional acts of sin. That that's not the goal. Those are the exceptions that happen. But the goal is to live and abide in Christ and and to walk in acts of righteousness. Well, it happens on the occasion that that doesn't happen. Well, thank the Lord that the cross of Jesus has brought a completed work. He just needs to clean our feet up a little bit because the, that believer is focused on Christ and the acts of righteousness that he's called to do and the life that we are called to live abiding in him. And so when he references there in verse six and nine, so who's he referencing about the one that keeps on sinning, that makes a practice of sinning? Because those born of God do not have a lifestyle of habit, continuity and unbroken sequence of sin. If we're born of God, there has to be some fight against our sin. Let me say that again. If we are born of God, there has to be a fight against our sin. We can't just say, oh, that's why Jesus went to the cross and I got this little license here. I'm going to swipe and I'm made free. No, Paul would say, may it never be. If you look at the original Greek of that, what Paul is honestly saying, he's saying, hell no. If you think you can continue on in sin and allow grace to be that license for you to keep on sinning, may it never be like the emotion that he said in those words. Like you can't even flirt with that kind of mentality because you've been born of God. You need to have some fight against your sin. You need to understand your view of sin should change and you should hate it. You know that uh, movie Magnificent Seven? If you've seen it, there's that scene where they're trying to teach the guys how to shoot and they're just farmers because now they're going to have to walk into battle, right? And they got like 50 of them lined up with some rifles and they got four dummies out there that they're practicing and they shoot three or four times and not one of them hits it. And, and the sharpshooter that's a part of the seven, he gets mad. He gets ticked. He goes, you have to hate what you're aiming at. You like get some passion and zeal in your belly. You have to hate what you're aiming at. And it's the same thing with our sin. We have to hate our sin, not just because of what it does to us and what we say theologically, because what it's done to Christ. Your sin nailed the perfect lamb of God to the cross. How can we just casually just keep walking in it? No, we have to hate this. It has to change our view. And if we're born of God, yes, it's occasionally going to happen. Thank the Lord that we have grace. But that's not a license to have this continued lifestyle, this habitual, unbroken sequence of sin. Because what's he say sin is? It's lawlessness. 
You can't live under the law of grace and live in sin, which is lawlessness. These two things conflict. You can't have both. But we're called to live a lifestyle marked by the righteousness of God. And so we need to put up a little bit of fight towards our sin. Well, what about the Christian that keeps living in habitual sin? That's the topic that's been hitting. And so all I say is, all of Scripture really doesn't reference that person because that's not the focus of a life with Jesus. We're asking the wrong question if that's the question that's on our hearts. Because what we're asking is, how close to sin can I get and still be called a believer? Find me the verse that wants to defend that. No. All of Scripture commands us to pursue Christ with our life. And the person that is living like that, living in habitual sin, living with an unbroken sequence of sin, with a view of sin that says, it's really not that big of a deal, or I don't even know if I would call that a sin, or no, that's not what we're called to as believers. And I think that's, again, a tool of the enemy to get us to be distracted because if we have to defend what sin is, what sin isn't, if a believer can live in habitual sin or not sin, what we're not doing is walking in obedience to Jesus. So I'm going to let them just continue arguing. Privately, I could speak into that. But publicly, when we think of the pulpit and, and a public exhortation and what is fruitful and effective to the whole body, pursue Christ with your life. He took away your sin and has now made you righteous pursue Christ with your life. And so the question that we have to ask is my lifestyle marked by a continuous fight against sin. And how do we fight against sin? What's John tell us? Abide in him. Abide in him. Don't look at your sin and think, how can I beat the snot out of it? Look to Jesus because he already destroyed the works of the devil. Abide in him. See, because our life, it's an evidence of who our Father is. That the world, one another should be able to look at each other and see us live in the fight that we're in, the works of righteousness, and be like, I know who your dad is. I know who your Abba is. I know who you're living for. Because there's a light about you. Yeah, that's the light of Christ in our life.